This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. The threat in space has definitely continued to evolve. And why? Because the enemy has seen us use space and cyber to be a force multiplier to the other domains. In a multi-domain fight, space and cyber allow the force to be connected and to have data and accuracy that we have never had before to be more lethal and efficient. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. As the U.S. marks the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is turning a spotlight on women in the military and featuring conversations about leadership, air, space, and cyber issues, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. This episode focuses on the evolution of air and space operations and the warfighting domain. I spoke with retired Air Force General Lori Robinson, who was commander of the U.S. Northern Command, better known as NORTHCOM, and of NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, and with Major General Deanna Burt, Commander, Combined Force Space Component Command, U.S. Space Command, and Vice Commander, Space Operations Command. This podcast was recorded before the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. General Robinson and Major General Burt, thank you so much for joining me here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Oh, it's an honor and a pleasure to have us here. I tell you what, this is such a great opportunity to to talk about things with you, and uh, we really appreciate your time. No, thanks, Bev. Appreciate being here. Of course. Glad to have you here. We'll get into air and space issues in a moment, but first I want to take just a moment to talk about the trailblazers that both of you are. General Robinson, you were the first woman ever to serve as a combatant commander leading U.S. NORTHCOM and NORAD. And Major General Burt, you're the first woman to hold the rank of Major General in the U.S. Space Force. And as people know, that's our newest branch of service. You lead about, what is it, 17,000 joint and combined personnel. And the question I have for you as a civilian person, how did you do it? What did it take to get to these levels of leadership? General Robinson, we'll start with you. Thanks, Bev. It's a great question. First thing that I would say is that there were people that believed in me. You know, they put me in places that wasn't normal for a woman and wasn't normal for an air battle manager. And the neat part about that in in my day as a young one in the middle 80s, was that those people that were doing it were male fighter pilots for the most part. And so for me, those were my heroes. But what was important about all of that, Bev, is the fact that I still had to perform. Uh, I still had to make sure that the things that I was doing is the very best of my ability and make sure that it was recognized. You know, if you followed me around at all, you will know that I've often said I'm a commander, I'm a general, I'm an airman, but I happen to be a woman. And through all of that, I realized that not only did I do something different, but I had people that taught me, people that believed in me, made me understand that I was something bigger than myself and, and live up to that. But all of that was, I understood I was a role model. So thanks to all those folks that made it happen, I was at the right place at the right time. General Burt? No, I, I agree with General Robinson. I mean, I think what she's describing is is what we would talk about today 
is not just mentors, but allies. Because again, uh, I too, many uh, male mentors that helped me come up through the process. Uh, I'll be honest, I, the first time General Robinson and I met, she was a lieutenant colonel and I was a captain at weapons school. And she was one of the first senior leaders that I met that were female that I really gravitated to and wanted to emulate. So there weren't a lot of opportunities for me to work directly for a woman or a female leader uh, to have those kinds of mentors. And so like General Robinson, I feel a strong re uh, responsibility to pay it forward and to mentor the young women that are behind me to ensure that, you know, they're thinking about what they need to do and how they set themselves up, how they manage and navigate trying to have families and children. You know, I think that's one of the most difficult things for women is the trying to understand and navigate how to be a mom if they want to be a mom and how to be married and have a spouse and is your spouse in the military or not and how you juggle that. Both General Robinson and I are both joint spouse couples and I am a stepmom and, and I know General Robinson has children of her own. I mean, those are, those are life balance and how do you do that and have a career at the same time and when you are a minority in the particular profession that you choose to be in. So uh, all those things have to get balanced and I feel a responsibility to help do that and I know General Robinson does too. I also resonate with her comment that, again, like anyone in the military, you just want to be an expert in your weapon system and do your job to the best of your ability. It really hurts your heart when someone goes, well, you know, there are people that will say, oh, you're here because you're a woman and we needed diversity and inclusion. No one ever wants that. No woman, no person of color, no one wants that. So you really want to be an expert in your weapon system. And I learned that early that that was important. Uh, weapon school reinforced that for me. And I've continued to try to be on a path of learning. One of the things I always tell my guys is, I believe once you stop, stop learning, you stop leading. Uh, when you believe you know everything, you have stopped working and evolving with your profession and with the threat in our business uh, to be able to be successful. So always seeking knowledge, always seeking to better yourself and to be the expert at what you do, I think is critical for anyone in any profession to be the best that they can be. Once you stop learning, you stop leading. I think that is a quote that everyone needs to have tacked up on their refrigerator that they can, or someplace where they can see it every day. So let's talk about some lessons learned. This conversation is taking place against the backdrop of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. What are some of the biggest and most impactful changes that you've seen in air and space operations in the, in the past two decades? And how have warfighting and the warfighting domain changed in the last 20 years? So Bev, I'll start. If you go back and you think about the day before the 9-11 attacks, and you, you went across our military and you looked at all the uh, different combatant commands that we had, whether it's Central Command, at the time Pacific Command, you know, European Command, there wasn't a command that was worried about the United States of America. And so probably one of the biggest things, you know, as we look back at that day was the standup of U.S. Northern Command. And so what I would tell you about that, it took about a year uh, for them to declare we were going to do it and then another year to be fully operational for U.S. Northern Command. But for the first time really since George Washington, it's the first time where we're like, how are we going to defend our nation? And as we think through that, you know, whether we're defending our nation or taking care of the people in our nation, that's kind of the whole mindset of the stand-up of Northern Command. So I would tell you, first of all, that's one of the biggest changes since 9-11 uh, is a whole entire new organization. But the other uh, thing I would tell you, as the commander out there, you wear two distinct hats. One is the commander of U.S. Northern Command, and the second is the commander of North American Aerospace Defense Command. And that command is a binational command. Well, what does that mean? 
That means that as the commander of NORAD, you're responsible both to the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of Canada to defend the airspace over both of those nations. Up until the point of 9-11, mostly everything that NORAD had been working on and doing had been looking inward, inward to US, inward to Canada. Once 9-11 happened, there was a whole big change about how we were gonna look at defending Canada and the United States in the air domain. And that started with looking outward. You know, you sit back and you think a little bit, you know, how have those domains changed? And I would, I would tell you the first step is understanding that the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean are no more moats. We do not have a sanctuary here in Canada, the United States at all. So as I contemplate what's changed in, in big terms, I would say, look at the capabilities that in the United States and even in Canada, in the air domain, how it has evolved over those 20 years, whether it's capabilities or whether it's capacity for us to be able to uh, defend in the air domain in the NORAD environment. In the NORTHCOM environment, if you sit back and contemplate and you watch uh, the history of this notion of learning defending the United States, this notion of working with defense support to civil authorities like FEMA or DHS or some of those folks, our relationship has changed over time from the very beginning and to what it is today. I can only imagine the number of guardsmen and women and the, and the number of folks in active duty that are, are helping with all those wildfires today. So while roles and missions were given to Northern Command, they had to understand what it meant. They had to, and that has evolved in the same with the role and mission of NORAD. Not only now are they concerned about the air domain over Canada and the United States, but also maritime awareness. So in a broad brush, that's one, I, one of the things I would say that has changed since 9-11. And General Burt, a big change, the agency or the SpaceCom is new post 9-11. Thanks, Beverly. And I agree with everything uh, that General Robinson said. I think, you know, if I were to describe it, it would be, you know, the peace dividend up until that point until 9-11. You know, we had not been attacked at home, as she mentioned, since George Washington. And how do you now go back to now having that fear of being and defending the homeland? Uh, part of that change from peace dividend to the now saying we could be attacked at home or hit at home, not only was it to stand up uh, NORTHCOM, but as a result, at the same time, U.S. Space Command existed in 2001, and we stood it down. We had a law at the time that limited the number of combatant commands we could have. So U.S. Space Command at that time, the decision was made that it would stand down in order for NORAD NORTHCOM to fully stand up. And ever since we stood it down, we've spent time uh, trying to build it back, and we just stood it back up in August of 2019. And that's due to the rise of space threats. You figure 9-11, 2001, you fast forward to 2007, the Chinese launched their first uh, ASAT against their own dead satellite and blow it into thousands of pieces, some of which we are still tracking debris today. You see the onset, and you've heard both General Raymond and General Dickinson, the U.S. Space Force and the U.S. Space Command commander, respectively, talking in recent testimony about a Chinese satellite that has a robotic arm, about a Russian capability that was shadowing uh, one of our high-value assets on orbit and low-Earth orbit. You are hearing about continued ASAT testing from the Russians uh, and the Chinese. So uh, the threat in space has definitely continued to evolve. And why? Because the enemy has seen us use space and cyber to be a force multiplier to the other domains. In a multi-domain fight, space and cyber allow the force to be connected and to have data and accuracy that we have never had before to be more lethal and efficient. And, and we've seen that since Desert Storm. We saw it in OEF and OIF post 9-11, uh, and it's continued. 
So you've seen also the rise of the digital age, digital superiority. The world is now more connected, so cyber and space, uh, again, continue to be on the rise for those reasons. We've kind of left the industrial age and we're now entering uh, the digital age and how does that impact warfighting and how do we do things? I'm sure Joe Robinson, as she was leaving Northcom, a lot of discussion about uh, battle management and how we connect the force across the joint multi-domain fight. You'll hear a lot of talk about JADC2 as a C2 system to allow all of the services to be able to share data in a rapid fashion uh, to meet that digital requirement. We've also seen the rise of near-peer competitors again. So we haven't seen that since the Cold War. Resurging Russia and a rising China. Uh, and that changes the calculus of having near-peer competitors, uh, both in space and cyber, and we've seen both of them absolutely grow since 9-11 on that. Again, to take it away from us or try to contest us in space because they've seen the advantage that space and cyber bring uh, to the United States Department of Defense. So I, I definitely see that in great power competition of how do we operate and deal with China and Russia on a day-to-day -day basis with all of our instruments of power across government both diplomatically, politically, and policy, and as well as uh, you know the military, what are we doing to try to challenge and check those competitors day in and day out as they continue to grow? So counterterrorism absolutely was at the forefront at 9-11, and how do we make it an away game and keep those folks from being able to strike the homeland? But we have evolved into counterterrorism still exists, but the greater threat on the horizon are the two near-peer competitors with Russia and China moving forward. So still lots of work to do across all the domains, not just space and cyber, but uh, a lot of growth uh, in the digital age has happened in both of those domains. If you look at the threat and how it's changed, I tell everybody in my NORAD hat, look at Russia and Canada, United States from the North Pole down, and you will see how absolutely close Russia is. So if you put that in the context of what Spice just talked about, you know, the resurgence of Russia, and you look at the, the how close Russia is to us, and then you add on to that how their capability has grown as well as their capacity, you know, that's something that we sit back and watch, which also helps us continue to grow our force and capability and capacity. You know, we all like to look at Russia around the middle of the globe, but I always tell people look at Russia and the United States from the top of the globe. I think it's incredibly important and it gives an incredibly different perspective. Absolutely agree, ma'am. And I think that then highlights the importance of the connectedness of the force and the timing that we're going to need to make decisions because that timeline is very short uh, over the polls, uh, as you point out. And, and so again, connecting the force digitally and passing decision quality information through space and cyber to those combatant commanders, both UCOM and NORAD NORTHCOM to be able to make decisions on both sides of what we need to do is going to be absolutely critical moving forward. Before I shift topics, I have a follow-up that I was going to ask later, but I want to ask it now because you both touched on cyber. And a lot of what happens in air and space operations is dependent upon cyber. We've seen in recent times how cyber can be a vulnerability. How do you tackle that vulnerability to keep operations safe and, and doing what we all hope they can do to protect all of us? It has to start all the way from birth of the weapon system. So in your acquisition processes, how are you looking at information assurance? How are you building in the capabilities to be able to put the right cyber protections on the system? Again, in a digital connected service, you're absolutely right, cyber is the soft underbelly. The other piece of this is how do we get to software driven capabilities that can be rapidly changed and we're not wedded to hardware considerations? And so what I mean by that is, do you have software based crypto? Do you have software based 
Weapon systems that you can reprogram as the enemy evolves or the cyber threat moves. You're able to then quickly reprogram your crypto. If your crypto is compromised, you can reprogram your software to shut down vulnerabilities. We have to be able to actually put tools and processes in place across our key cyber terrain for, so if I'll speak specifically for space, those are our antennas, our ground systems where we command and control our satellites. We actually have humans in the loop doing mission defense teamwork. They understand how their weapon systems are connected and they're constantly watching traffic over those lines and systems to make sure that there are no intruders or people who are not supposed to be there. Uh, as the enemy evolves, we keep adding new tools, working with Cyber Command as those are identified and those threats are out there. Uh, so it's a, it's a marriage of machines, software, and humans in the loop that are doing cyber defense across the weapon systems. And that's not just in the Space Force. The Air Force is using that as well and the other services. It's absolutely critical because, as we've said, what makes the United States military the best of the best is our ability to centrally control and decentralize execution. And that comes with the communication capability to be able to transmit orders and allow folks to operate and execute uh, in a combined fashion. And so cyber and comm and the ability to connect are critical. And Bev, I would just add one more thing because in this conversation, John Burt is the expert. But the only thing I would add is she talked about defense of the network and the human in the loop. And to me, the other part of all of this is training, right? So anybody that is on a defense network understands, you know, if somebody can have the ability to infiltrate the network and what that looks like. And so the training of every human being that is on that defense network reinforces all those things that General Burt just said, because it does start with that human. And if I could have one more follow-up as we're talking about this particular area, we did a podcast with my colleague, Caitlin Johnson, from our Aerospace Security Project earlier this year, and she talked about threat in the space domain, much as you've outlined, General Burt. But her comments were focused mostly on the civilian side. I'm curious about other threats in space that concern you. You've outlined a number of them. First, how do we cooperate with our allies in this area? And then does deterrence work in space or is there a deterrence effort in space? First, I think I am the Combined Force Space Component Commander. So I have right now seven nations and growing that work here on our ops floor who are like-minded space nations, particularly that we talk about the CSPO and the Big Five, which are UK, Australia, Canada, France, and Germany. But those like-minded nations uh, recognize that we want space to be, be free and fair for all for commerce. I think we just saw some amazing feats by Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic of uh, human space travel, commercial space travel. So it's only going to continue to explode in commerce and in the market and the cost of entry into space is lowering. So it's you're seeing more commercial and industry capability being launched and leveraged. And, and I think that's awesome because that helps the military as well bring down our costs uh, and how we do business and how we operate. So everybody has to be able to have the free and fair use of space, whether you be a coalition partner, the U.S., uh, or industry. So how do we build together working? What are the rules and norms? And how do we operate safely in the domain day to day? And then if a war should extend into space, what then are the rules of engagement and how we would operate uh, and notify those partners? So day to day, shoulder to shoulder, I have those partners on our ops floor. And when there are threats in the in the domain, so debris, possibly hitting one of their vehicles or something happening. Those folks are absolutely engaged. Uh, they're briefed at the appropriate classification levels so they understand the threats. They are then calling back to their space operations centers because all of those countries I listed now have their own space operations 
centers, whether they be within a service component or a combatant command. And we are talking directly op center to op center, how we deconflict and work that. Each of those countries also bring some of their own space capabilities. Uh, Canada has quite a bit of ISR and other capabilities that they contribute and bring to the fight. And so just like in any coalition, the coalition comes to the table with how they would like to participate, what capabilities they would like to bring, and at what level they want to be involved. So those partnerships will continue in the space domain just like they do in coalitions in every other domain. Uh, so tight relationships with the coalition day in and day out. For the industry side, I have what's called a commercial integration cell. So I have 10 right now, 10 companies that are briefed at the TSSCI level and receive information. Uh, they're individual CRADAs. So the CRADA is not an exchange of money. It's an exchange of ideas and experimentation and classified information to help us work together to experiment and solve problems. So those 10 partners, and we're looking to grow that, uh, we're reworking the framework for that. But the 10 that we have today talk to us. We talk back and forth about threats. We warn them of threats. We talk about how we would engage so think, for example, satellite communications. A commercial vendor provides uh, satellite communications to the military. We want to know the customers that are on those satellites and how we would uh, offload them or protect them should those satellites be threatened. And so we need to work that hand in hand uh, with the commercial partner and how we would operate. As far as deterrence goes, I think this, these partnerships that we're talking about act as a deterrent. The secret sauce that the United States has as compared to others, our two near-peer competitors, Russia and China, are our relationships on the international stage that they, they really don't have. They struggle to create partnerships or keep a coalition working with them on issues, uh, whereas we have very strong coalitions both in the United Nations as well as in NATO and with our growing space partners around the world. So I think that is part of that deterrent. I also believe that, uh, as we've talked about, if you were to ask, and this is a great question to ask General Chilton, he's a former uh, STRATCOM commander and, and worked in Space Command and talks deterrence all the time to us as GOs, as a mentor. To have a deterrent means you have to have the ability. I always, I'll go back. I always equate it to when you have children, right? If you tell your child, if you do this, you're going to get a spanking. And then the child does the act. And if you don't give the spanking and you tell them to just stop and keep stop doing it, it you've now failed at deterrence, right? Because you, you, you labeled the threat. You said what the threat was. It was a spanking, that if they did this, you were going to retaliate with a spanking. If the spanking does not occur then they have called your bluff and deterrence has failed and they are going to continue now to do the action because you didn't respond. I think in the space domain, uh, we have to be able, if a war extends into space or there is an attack in space, how are we going to respond and what is going to be the offensive or threat action that is taken to hold against a given nation? Uh, and that doesn't have to be a space answer. That can be done from any domain. But what would be our response if a U.S. asset were struck or hit or taken out by a near-peer competitor? How would we respond as a nation? And so again, those over time have to be established, which is why those rules and norms are really important to define what is good behavior in the domain and how does everyone operate free and fair and open to all? And then how do we flip that on its head and say, what is hostile intent? And I know uh, as an air battle manager, General Robinson is very familiar in the air domain about how you declare things as hostile and, and what's considered normal rules and norms in the air domain. And General Robinson, if you could just pick up there and talk more about the norms of behavior for the air domain. Put it in the context of war fighting operations. The first thing that always happens is, you know, what does the national command authority said differently? What does the president of the United States want to achieve? Utilizing this particular instrument of power, the military. Once that is, is decided, then we've got the joint force commander and that joint force commander will then take 
those messages, put them in objectives for the overall force, and then the overall force in the services or domains will put together a, a campaign plan. So in this campaign plan, what you'll see is uh, what we call an air tasking order. It tells you know who's gonna go where, do what. Uh, and that also includes, and General Burt, I'll just go through this a little bit, includes space and cyber. I mean, we have to make sure that when we do something, when we execute what's being asked of by the Joint Force Commander in support of National Command Authority, you know, all of those capabilities have to be meshed together to make sure that we have the best effect. And then through that, rules of engagement will govern activities. If you think back way back when, when Desert Shield, Desert Storm as an example, you know, we would have people dropping bombs. If you watched as time went by, you know, we became more precise in, in our ability to do that. And the more precise we became, the rules of engagement changed. And then this notion of what we call collateral damage, i.e. somebody unintended gets hurt, has changed. And so that in the warfighting domain, those norms of understanding what the commander's intention is, understanding what the National Command Authority wants and our objectives are, those nor rules and norms apply in that warfighting construct, if you will. Day in and day out, you know, we all practice, we all train, and we set up uh, exercises, and we set up uh, teaching environments where we can understand the rules of engagement to make sure that the way we want to employ and do what we want to do is capable and that we are working together as a joint and uh, combined force. You know, if you think about it, though, um, and one of the great ranges that uh, General Burt and I had the privilege to work on are the Nellis Ranges out in Nevada, north of Las Vegas. Um, and surrounding all of that, and in, in, in most training ranges, is civilian aircraft. So it's, it's that understanding of, you know, who is it that you see? Are they a friendly? Are they somebody that might be bad? Are they no kidding bad? And then depending upon what the rules of engagement are, what do you do about that? But in a bigger scheme, and I'll step back for a second, but if you think about it, as an air battle manager, my job was to ensure that the good guys found the bad guys, right? And so that we could all come together and from our side, execute the things that need to be done. If you think about civilian aviation, you know, we have FAA, and FAA's job is to keep us apart, uh, to make sure that we don't come together, uh, because that ends up being catastrophic. And so from the notion of ensuring what we do is a, a coherent execution to support uh, the National Command Authority, understanding all the rules of engagement, what are the things you can and cannot do in support of commander's intent. But at the end of the day, last thing I'll say in this is, in a warfighting environment, warfighting operations, every person is, um, has the right to self-defense, and that, that will never be taken away. Now that's a, man, that is absolutely awesome. So I'll, I'll dovetail on to, you did a much better job laying it out soup to nuts than I did. So I'll, I'll come back to uh, the Joint Force Command. So Beverly, the, the absolutely General uh, Robinson is correct. And so one of the things we've worked out at U.S. Space Command is how do we put in integrated planning elements to each of the combatant commands in order for that Joint Force Commander's plan, as General Robinson defined, to truly have space in it and understand the space capabilities and cyber on top of and integrated seamlessly with the other domains. So absolutely that has to happen and Space Command has put those planning elements out there to start getting after it and also getting into the targeting working groups and all of the normal battle rhythm within the combatant command and the Joint Force Commander. From there though, what I would also say is she mentioned you know, the FAA. Today, unlike the other domains, the space domain 
started with a government lead. If you pick the Navy or the land domain or the air domain, they started with entrepreneurs or inventors who built something. And then over time, that was then militarized and used by the military. So the civilian and commercial side led in the other domains where we didn't do that in space. So I'll give you an example. Henry Ford builds a car. We go, wow, car, that's really great. Now we're going to think about how can we militarize that and it becomes a tank. And then how, you know, then do tanks operate as compared to how cars operate and how do we delineate traffic on roads and you have the Department of Transportation that works our roadways and how those are happening. Uh, the same thing happens when we talk about air. Orville and Wilbur build an airplane. At the end of World War I, we realize, hey, there's utility to this capability, both from an intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance capacity to also to dropping bombs. So again, though, the commercial side started before the military side. In this case, in the government-led, because of the cost of entry, the government-led the development and the build-out of the space domain. That's not to say industry wasn't there helping us build things, but the rules, the norms, those kinds of things were set by, in the Cold War particularly, between the Russians or the Soviet Union and the United States about how we were going to operate because we were the, the two large players. And over the years it's evolved, other countries have entered into space. Uh, but again, a very expensive business. Now with the rise of commercial industry, and gentlemen like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and all the companies that are coming forward and starting to develop, I think you're going to see the cost of entry and the prices are starting to come down. Uh, we've seen definite advantage with Elon Musk working with launch to bring down the cost of launch for us as the government. Uh, all those things are starting to happen. NASA wants to go to the moon and stay in 2024. Elon Musk is trying to get to Mars. So the dynamic has changed from being more government-led to now more commercial industry and the explosion of the number of satellites on orbit. They're now outstripping the number of military satellites on orbit. So with that said, you know, the dynamic of the norms of behavior in that space traffic management has changed. So the NDAA has de designated Department of Commerce as the lead for space traffic management, very similar to how the FAA does air traffic management uh, in the air domain. They need to stand up, and we are working shoulder to shoulder with them to try to help them stand up. They may choose to build capabilities of their own, very separate from the military, or they may try uh, to look at how they leverage what we have now until they get what they need. But, but that infrastructure has to be built. But just as General Robinson said, when she is in her AWACS as an air battle manager, she understands the commercial traffic around the Nellis Range, but she was also then very able to understand who was red and who was blue on the Nellis Range as part of her exercise. But she had that entire picture, that transparency of the domain to be able to operate and to operate safely. And that's what we are striving for to get to in the space domain, which again, today, the government, my organization through the 18th Space Control Squadron, on spacetrack.org provides that space traffic management and space picture. Uh, we absolutely warn people when things and debris or two satellites could hit each other. Uh, we make those notifications, but we have no authority to make anyone do anything other than Department of Defense capabilities that have been given to General Dickinson as the U.S. Space Command commander uh, to command and control. The next piece I would say then when we talk about areas of responsibility, General Dickinson also owns 100 kilometers to infinity. So his job, he does have a physical area of responsibility, just like some of the other geographic combatant commanders. But he also has a responsibility to provide space capabilities as a global functional commander to all of the other combatant commands. So he's kind of a hybrid between a geographical combatant commander and a functional combatant commander like Cyber Command. Uh, so how does he uh, manage his missions and how will he deconflict between commercial uh, and military if a war extends into space? 
and we are having to defend resources, how would how would he do that, and how would that be done in coordination with our coalition uh, and commercial partners? And so again, as Department of Commerce stands up, all those things evolve. The last thing is General Robinson talked about the inherent right of self-defense. Uh, just recently, the SecDef published a, a list of what we would call uh, norms of behaviors. There's five tenants. One is not creating space debris. Obviously, another is you know managing your satellite and operating uh, safely in the slot or orbit uh, location you're supposed to be in, and, and the list goes on. Uh, the question becomes, what is a hostile act? How close do two satellites have to get before it is considered hostile? If you blow up my satellite, is that a hostile act? I would say most people would say yes. When you talk about the words hostile act in most other domains, in many cases that has to be the loss of human life uh, to be a hostile act. I'll give you the example of we've had many times that RPAs have been shot down in theater, uh, their machines. And so when they're shot down, yes, we're not happy and, and we continue to try to find the threats to those uh, to make them go away. But it's, it's never looked at, I think, as an act of war because it's a machine and a human did not die. Uh, I would argue that in space, even though satellites don't have moms and their machines, when you lose a satellite, so I'll go back to General Robinson's experience as the NORAD NORTHCOM commander. If I were to take out a missile warning satellite, and it is the bell ringer for then the homeland defense, the missile defense capabilities that are in the continental United States, depending on which satellites I take down and how that impacts, that could decrease the amount of time that the NORAD NORTHCOM commander has along with the missile defense agency in order to acquire that threat and shoot that threat down. Uh, and as we talked about over the poles, really short timeline as it is already just geographically with the Russians as compared to you know, across the ocean. So even if you lose a space capability, which is a machine, the second and third order effects could be the loss of life in other domains uh, as a result of not having that bell ringer capability or that intelligence surveillance or reconnaissance uh, or the communications that you needed uh, in order to connect the force. So there are second and third order effects that could end up in the loss of life. And so again, how do you get to defining hostile intent and the inherent right of self-defense? So we've tried and we're doing it as a Department of Defense. We've defined what we think are our norms of behavior as the Department of Defense in how we fly satellites and how we operate in the domain. Now that needs to go to the next step to the UN, the United Nations, to look at how would we define what norms of behavior are in agreement with our coalition partners uh, in industry and how would we do that. And I think that will be the next step because now once you've defined what is normal and what is okay, you can now start to define what is hostile. I can tell you that many of my air-breathing friends and General Robinson can attest, if, if another aircraft pointed nose hot at me and lit me up with their radar, I would start to get a little nervous and to me that would be a hostile uh, act if that were uh, another a Chinese or a Russian aircraft. Uh, and then based on my rules of engagement, my inherent right of self-defense and what I would do depending on how far away that threat is from me, what they are carrying, missiles, knowing how far they can reach out and touch me, uh, all those things come into play in the theater uh, of whether I'm allowed to, to shoot uh, and not wait to get killed. What you just heard General Burt say is really important because the more that we can be consistent in our verbiage and in our actions between um, air and space, and eventually the same will probably happen in cyber, the more it makes it easier for everybody to understand how we're employing and, and to define that. And what we want is the ability to understand what that word hostile means as an example and ensure to the best ex uh, extent that we can that it's incredibly similar across all domains uh, so that everybody, again, when you get that data, you understand what it means and you can move out if necessary.
Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating and incredibly informative conversation. General Robinson, Major General Burt, thank you so much for joining me here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I have to say I'm a fan of you both, and I am really excited that we have the time to talk about this today. It's really important. Thank you both. Thank you so much for asking us. Now, I agree. It's been an honor. Thanks, Bev. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.